Well, today's our last day in this series, Jesus is Better. It's been a fun journey through the Old Testament. And this morning, we're taking quite a leap from the story of Moses all the way to the story of a prophet whom you may know. His name is Elijah. And we're going to consider the story of Elijah and how his story helps us as we read the Scripture, better understand the work of Jesus Christ. A lot happens between the work of Moses and the work of Elijah and the story of the Old Testament. The people of God move finally into the land of promise under a guy named Joshua and are able to, to conquer the land in the story of the judges. A monarchy is established as a people of God cry out for a king and after the reigns of Saul, David, and Solomon, the, the once glorious kingdom of God upon the earth, the kingdom of God's people, especially under the reign of David, begins to divide because of the people and, and the king's inability to remain obedient to God and His commands. You see, during this, this passage of time between Moses and Elijah, we begin to see some, some fractures between the people of God and the God that they serve. Some, some faults in their heart begin to be revealed in the pages of the Scripture. We see the people of God desiring to be like the people around them, to be like the other nations around them. Instead of embracing the call of God upon their life to be a set-apart nation, a, a uniquely blessed nation that all the other nations of the world could look at and marvel, at the God of the people of Israel, they reject that responsibility. They reject that calling and desire instead to be like the other nations around them. Their, their calling is inverted in many ways. Not only that, they begin to desire women from these foreign lands that they want to be like. They begin to, to marry other women. And as they marry outside of the nation of Israel, the idolatrous worship of those other nations begins to be introduced into the people of Israel. And as these idols are introduced, the people begin to worship them. They become an idolatrous people. And this, this disobedience that we see unfolding in the people of God, it consumes them. And as a result, they are now in danger of facing the judgment and the discipline of God. Catastrophic discipline that God is preparing for them. And in the midst of this rebellion, though, we still see God at work. God begins to, to raise up voices from among His people to call His people back to Himself to, to reject this rebellion and embrace the calling that God had placed upon them once again. He raises up prophets. Prophets who are to stand before God's people and beg them, beg them to return to the Lord. Their others, the other leaders had forsaken them. The kings had led them astray. Oftentimes, the priests had fell in their role as well as representing God before man and man before God. And now it's the work of the prophets. Their voice has become the, the purifying force, the purifying hope for the people of God. And here's what we see them doing. As they function as messengers of God, these prophets speaking for God. Here's how the Old Testament describes 
their work. And I want to give you this outline as we move forward or this, this framework to understand the work of the prophet to help you read and, and discern what it is that God is doing through his prophetic messengers. Firstly, we see the prophets receiving the word of God. The scripture wants you to know that what the prophets are offering to the people of God are not their own words. They are words that are divinely given. They are not words that carry the authority of the prophet. They are words that carry the authority of God himself as he speaks over the people. Secondly, the prophets warn of coming judgment. One of the centerpieces of the message that the prophets receive to tell the people of God is, if nothing changes, judgment will come. Dark days are ahead. There's a warning that God gives through His prophets, but there's also a call to repentance as the goal. God does not want to, to bring this judgment on you. He does not want to, to, to curse you. He wants to be an author of blessing for you. And you will, you will receive the blessing of God if you will repent and return to Him while there is still time. And in offering that message or that, that possibility of repentance, the prophets remind the people of God of the better future that awaits them with God rather than apart from God. That's not an exhaustive list, but it gives you a framework to understand what it is that God is doing through the prophets. God speaks through the prophets to his people a message of repentance. Prophets are instruments of repentance, a purification for the people of God, as God is calling his people back to return to him and enjoy the blessing he desires to pour out over them. And of course, we see this work clearly in the story of Elijah. Elijah, in many ways, and throughout the scripture, represents the entire prophetic office. You may remember on the Mount of Transfiguration, there are are two people who come to meet Jesus in his glorified state. Do you remember who they are? Moses and Elijah. Moses representing the law, Elijah representing the prophets. And so if we want to understand the work of prophet, and we want to understand how the work of prophet helps us understand Jesus as prophet, then Elijah makes perfect sense to turn to. If the Bible sets him up as kind of the pattern of prophetic work, then we should look to him as we consider the, the greater work of prophets in general. And the climax of God's prophetic work through Elijah is found in 1 Kings 18. It's the climax of his story, and we're going to go and, and look at that story this morning. Let me give you a little bit of background to help us understand what's happening in 1 Kings 18. Let's set the scene. The most wicked king in the history of Israel to this point has ascended to the throne. His name was Ahab. And the Bible says of Ahab in 1 Kings 16.33 that Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the other kings who were before him. And that's saying something, right? I mean, if you read the Old Testament and you see how bad the kings are, for the Bible to say of Ahab, he was the worst of them, should catch your attention. That's a bad dude. And his wife, maybe worse. Her name was Jezebel. She was a pagan herself. And the two of them together, Ahab and Jezebel, bring to fruition this 
this walking of the people of God into idolatrous worship. They lead the people of God to reject worship of Yahweh almost entirely and to instead worship Baal, false god of the Canaanites whom Jezebel worshipped in her hometown of Tyre. Now the expression of Baal that we see in, in this text specifically leads us to understand Baal as a false god of rain and fertility. The people who worshipped him believed that he was the god of the storm, that he was the one who would bring rain upon the land and consequently to bring blessing upon the people as their crops would flourish and they would have food to eat. You can understand how the, the power and the promise that Baal provides even though he's a false god, will be attractive to an agrarian people. Not to mention that the worship of Baal included a lot of getting drunk and some ritual sexual practices. So it immediately not only engaged the need of the people, worship of Baal also engaged the sinful appetites of God's people. And so they went all in. As they wandered away from God, as they saw this this false God promising what they need and also allowing them to indulge their basis appetites, they ran after him. And so it's no accident that God, in wanting to call his people back to himself, begins to engage with the false promises of Baal. God calls Elijah in 1 Kings 17 verse 1 to go to this wicked king Ahab and tell him there's going to be a severe drought in the land. So Ahab, people of God, you think it's Baal that gives rain. I got a newsflash for you. He doesn't. And to prove that to you, I'm going to withhold the rain for three years so that you can understand the foolishness, the futility of trying to, to ask this false God created by human hands to give you what I can only give you. Just as Elijah promises, for three years, the drought consumes the land of Israel and Ahab and the people of God are getting desperate. In fact, Ahab seeks Elijah out because he wants to kill Elijah for speaking this curse upon his land. But the Lord hides Elijah and he protects him until it's finally time for this display of God's unmatched power to come to an end. 1 Kings 18, the Lord calls Elijah to present himself to Ahab, and Elijah does just that. We pick up the story in verse 17. Ahab says to Elijah whenever he sees them, is that you, you troubler of Israel? That's ironic. See, Ahab still doesn't recognize his role in all of this. He still thinks it's Elijah's fault. He, he doesn't see his own fault in the story. But Elijah is quick to remind him in verse 18, I have not troubled Israel, Ahab. It's you, you and your father's house, because you've abandoned the commandments of the Lord and you've turned the people to follow the Baals. You see, this physical drought is a spiritual drought. It's meant to picture a spiritual drought that you have led the people of God into. You've gotten the proper result for what it is that you have worshipped. So Elijah says, 
Let's put this thing to the test once and for all. I propose a contest. A contest between your false god and the one true God of Israel. Let's see who the God of the storm really is. Over here, 450 prophets of Baal. And connected to them, 400 prophets of the goddess Asherah. And this corner. And this corner over here, the one remaining prophet of the one true God of Israel, Yahweh. So let's do 850, 450 specifically, to one. And let's see whose God that we represent as prophets is able to do what we ask them to do. Now let's read the story together as we see God unfold His matchless glory, beginning in verse 20 of 1 Kings 18. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel, and he gathered the prophets together on Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, you follow Him. If it's Baal, then follow Him. And the people did not answer him in a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us. And bulls, according to some commentaries, a bull was symbolic of Baal. So it's no accident that Elijah asks for a bull. This false god is going to be humiliated in a number of ways. So bring us some bulls. Let's have two. And let them choose, these false prophets, let them choose one bull for themselves. Let them cut it in pieces and lay it on wood. But put no fire to it. And I will prepare another bull, lay it on wood, and I will put no fire to it. And then, verse 24, let's call upon the name of our God. You call upon the name of your God, I'll call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, He is God. And all the people answered, it's well spoken. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, you choose for yourself one bull and prepare it first. I'm going to give you all the advantage. The most people, you get the first time of preparation. You prepare it first, for you are many. You call upon the name of your God. Put no fire to it. And the prophets did. They took the bull that was given to them. They prepared it. And they called upon the name of the Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But to no one's surprise, <laughs> there was no voice and no one answered. And they limped around the altar. There's that limping again. They, they limped around the altar they had made. And at noon, Elijah began to mock them, saying, hey, cry louder. He is a god, right? I, maybe he's musing. Or maybe he's relieving himself. That is in the Bible. He's taking a potty break. Maybe he's on a journey. Or perhaps... He's asleep and you need to awaken him. And they cried louder. They cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved. They raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation, but there was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. And you know what? You want to know why? Because there was nothing there. Then Elijah said to all the people, verse 30, come near to me. All the people came near to him and he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob to whom the word of the Lord came saying, Israel shall be your name. 
And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. He made a trench about the altar as great as would contain two seas of wood. And he put the wood in, in, in order, cut the bull in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. In a time of drought, he's asking them to bring the water they have left. Do it a second time. Do it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and that all I have done has been at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. And the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust, and it licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, this display of power, they fell on their faces and they said, the Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. And Elijah said to them, seize the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. And they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them. Well, I think that about settles it, don't you? There's only one God. There's only one true God of Israel. And Israel, remember, the worship of any other God, any false God will always be shown to be foolish and it will always lead to your destruction. You see, through the prophet Elijah, God displays his unmatched glory. And through an incredible display of power, he calls his people back to himself. So let's consider again the work of the prophet and how God accomplishes this incredible repentance work, this, this returning of his people back to himself through the prophet. So we see Elijah receiving the word of God. Prophets are recipients. Elijah is no exception. He was a recipient of the word of God. Any authority that he spoke with was directly tied to the word of God that he received. God speaks directly to Elijah and then uses Elijah and the authority that he's given as an instrument of revelation. It should be noted here that Elijah does not hold back the rain with his own words. Elijah does not call down fire from heaven with his own words. Everything that happens, everything that will happen is a direct result of the word of God that is given to Elijah from God. Of course, he says this in verse 36. He's praying and he says, God, Abraham, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God and that I am your servant and that everything that I have done has been a directly at your word. There should be no doubt as we read this story of this prophet or any story of any prophet, any, any miraculous work that we see in Scripture, that Elijah is not the hero of this story. The prophet is not the hero of this story. God is the hero of this story. It is His power on display. It is His glory on display. The prophets, Elijah as a prophet, there's no glory in him. There's no authority in him in of itself. 
It is a received authority, a received word that he acts upon. Secondly, we also see that Elijah, in the message he receives, warns of coming judgment. He's doing the work of a prophet here and announcing a judgment that is going to come upon the people of God and a greater judgment that will come if they don't return. God is a jealous God. He's not jealous in a human way. He's actually jealous for our good. He created us to worship Him. He's given us Himself to worship. And He knows that there's no greater thing He could have given us to worship than Himself. And when we go in our folly and begin worshiping other things, it offends Him at the core of His being, but it also leads to our destruction. He doesn't want that for us, and He wants our worship for Himself because He is uniquely worthy of our praise. Consider for a moment how foolish this idolatry looks after we've read what we've read throughout the Old Testament. Think about what this people experienced at the hand of Yahweh. And they had the audacity to go look at the God of the Canaanites and give Him worship. They've experienced a miraculous deliverance, right? They were in Egypt, the most powerful nation upon the planet. They had no hope. They had no way of escape. They cried out to God and He delivered them miraculously. When they were surrounded by death, God Himself, through Moses, parted the Red Sea so the people of God could walk through on dry ground. They experienced that. They, they were moved from death to life by the hand of God. Incredible. They had been given some prime real estate by God. A land they had no business inhabiting, and yet greater people, more powerful people, one after the other, God delivered them from and gave them the land that they had inhabited to fulfill His promise. They had seen God act over and over again, time after time, on their behalf. They had enjoyed the unparalleled blessing of God. They had worshipped Him, enjoyed Him, and yet in spite of all of that work and all of that blessing that God had poured out upon them, they turned their attention to worship the creation of man. They began to give credit for all the blessing they received. They, be, they begin to, to ask and worship Baal instead of this God who had acted so incredibly on their behalf. God will not let this false God steal His glory. He will not let His people continue in their foolishness to give the praise that He alone is worthy to something that another nation created with their own hands and their own imaginations. It is not Baal who should get credit for rain. It is not Baal who should get credit for the blessing and abundance of Israel. It is not Baal who should be looked to for protection and provision. It is God. He alone is worthy of that kind of praise and trust. And Elijah tells the people of God, if you don't, if you don't leave this place of spiritual drought that you are experiencing under the judgment of God, then you will end up just like these false gods and their prophets. You will be destroyed. Because that's what idolatrous worship gets you. The judgment and wrath 
of God. It's the consequence of idolatry. When you worship nothing, you get nothing. Actually, when you worship nothing, you get destruction. The worship of an idol, a God you create in your own image, is really the worship of yourself. And it will always lead to your destruction rather than your salvation because you don't have the power to save yourself. No act of imagination, no act of your hands will ever be enough to save you. And connected to his message of judgment, Elijah then calls the people of God to repentance. Because the judgment and discipline of God upon his people is always, always meant, always meant to bring his people back to himself. This declaration of judgment is meant to lead to restoration. It's meant to to lead to reconciliation between the people of God and God. You see, the work of the prophet is not just to be a negative Nancy, right? They're not called to just go around and be a naysayer to bring bad news all the time, to be a Debbie Downer. No, God raises them up to be an instrument of restoration. God wants the people of God to know, hey, listen, there's a break in our relationship. Something's not right. And if you don't turn, if you don't return to me, it's going to lead to your destruction. It's going to lead to judgment. I must pour judgment upon you. I must discipline you. I must pour my wrath upon you because I cannot abide in my holiness and righteousness, the false worship that you are engaging in, but I don't want that for you. I want to pour blessing over you. I want to, I want to open the floodgates of heaven to shower you with blessing, but you got to return to me. you got to come home. I cannot do that. So Israel... Elijah says, remember who you serve. Verse 21, how long, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? How long will you go limping between the one true God that you know and the false God who's just indulging your appetites and leading you to destruction? Don't limp. Stand tall in the blessing of God. Leave the spiritual drought and return to the rain, the blessing of God. And that's when Elijah points them to a greater future. If you return, if you return, the water will come with it. If you return, the blessing of God will come back upon you as the people. So come back and experience the incredible gifts that God wants to give to you. It's an incredible work, an incredible message that God delivers through his servant, Elijah. Elijah was a great prophet, incredible prophet. But as we continue reading the story of of Elijah, we also notice that there were also some flaws in Elijah. There was also an incompleteness to the work that Elijah did on behalf of the people. We begin to to think that maybe this prophet Elijah is not the, the greater prophet that Moses wrote about in Deuteronomy 18, 18. Maybe there's another prophet who could 
lead God's people into a greater repentance? Is there, is there another prophet who would withstand the attacks of the enemy and himself prove faithful in the face of any difficulty that comes his way? Because as incredible as Elijah is on Mount Carmel, as incredible as his confidence in the Lord on Mount Carmel, the very next chapter, we see a man of faith be overcome by fear. Because when Jezebel hears what he's done, when Jezebel hears from Ahab that all the prophets of Baal have been murdered, she sends word to Elijah, I'm going to make it my mission in life to destroy you. And even though Elijah has just seen an unparalleled display of God's power, do you know what he does? He runs. The very thing he called the people of God to do, he himself does not do. On one hand, I'm encouraged that God would use imperfect people like Elijah because that means he can use me. On the other hand, it begins to stir my heart to long for a greater prophet, a greater spokesman of God who will lead the people of God to a greater place of repentance. Would a greater prophet come? Is there someone with a greater authority who could bring about a greater display of God's power and, and truly once and for all, draw God's people back to Himself. And the Bible answers with the resounding yes. His name is Jesus. He's the greater prophet. Jesus is the true prophet of God who reveals the power of God and calls His people back to saving repentance. So let's think for a moment, based on what we learned about the work of the prophet and the work of Elijah specifically, how Jesus is shown to be the greater Elijah, the greater prophet. Firstly, Jesus is the Word of God. Notice the difference there. He is the Word of God. Jesus doesn't receive the Word of God. He is the Word of God. Whereas Elijah had to have temporary authority granted to him to speak on behalf of God. There's no temporary in the authority given to Jesus because He is God. He is the Word incarnate, the incarnate, the divine Logos. You see, Jesus doesn't just speak on behalf of God. He speaks as God. The same words that spoke creation into existence, the same words that, that cultivated and called forth a nation are the same words that are coming forth from the mouth of Jesus Christ. He has authority over all things. So here's the declaration for us today as God's people. When Jesus Christ speaks, you better listen. There's no doubt about whether or not He speaks for God. He is God. He is the Word of God. And Jesus warns of a greater judgment. He warns of a greater judgment when he speaks because God does take idolatry seriously, not just then, but throughout all of human history. And he has, he has shown in his interaction with mankind in small ways how seriously he deals with idolatry. But there is coming a day that Jesus tells us about when God will once and for all deal with the idolatrous worship of his creation. Psalm 115 that we read earlier tells of the futility 
of worshiping idols and the destruction that will come as a result of it. Let me read verses 2 through 8 of Psalm 115. Why should the nation say, where is their God? When our God is in the heavens, He does all that He pleases, but their gods, their idols, their silver and gold, their, their work of human hands. We are works of Him, but these gods are works of themselves. They have mouths, but do not speak. Eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. Noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel. Feet, but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them, listen, become like them. And so do all who trust in them. You know, I know what happens to them. They're destroyed. And if you worship idols, guess what? You're going to become like them. God takes idolatry seriously. And there's coming a day, Jesus tells us, Matthew 24, when God will make good on that promise. There will be false prophets who arise, trying to turn our attention from God, who try to, to call us to worship things that are figments of our imaginations, just fancy things that we create to give us an excuse to worship ourselves. And any that reject God to worship those false things will be rejected by God Himself. God will judge all those who have turned to a false God because Jesus came for judgment. John 9.39. He declares judgment and Jesus will be the author of judgment Himself because idolatry must be judged. And some of you are thinking, well, thank God we're not idolaters. Thank God we don't have these figures in our home that we worship. Friends, our idolatry may look different, but we still are idolaters. It's important for us to recognize that. Tim Keller says that the human heart is an idol factory. There are so many things that we elevate above God and give Him the worship that He alone deserves. It's very easy for us to, to mock the prophets of Baal the way that Elijah does. To look at their foolishness. Say, how ridiculous is it that they would cut themselves? They would pierce themselves and have, how, how ridiculous is it that they would sit around for hours and hours and call upon this false God to come and give them what only the one true God could? And as we mock them, a pride begins to well up in our hearts, thinking that we're better. But let me just turn the mirror around for a second. I heard someone say the other day that, that we as Americans, especially in the South, we don't worship the prophet Baal or the false god Baal. We worship the false god Baal. As in football or baseball or basketball or softball or volleyball. Now, just consider for a moment how ridiculous in the course of history our actions toward these human games are going to look like, are going to look, Right? I mean, today, yesterday, today, across the nation, there are going to be people who paint up, who don costumes, spend countless amounts of money to go and watch a group of grown men play a game for three or four hours. And they're going to yell, they're going to scream, they're going to rejoice, they're going to be devastated. Their emotional stability is going to be tied to what happens on that field. 
doesn't matter if it rains. doesn't matter if they had a late night the night before. doesn't matter if family comes in town. doesn't matter if something at work came up. They're going to be at that game because it's primary. Their, their devotion is to that experience. And think about what that communicates. In comparison, maybe to their devotion to the Lord. Think about what that communicates to everyone around them about what they place as the most important, right? Listen, fall is a fun thing. It's, it can be a neutral, fun thing. But here's, here's the important thing. If our resources, if more of our resources, more of our time and energy, more of our, our thinking goes to a football team or a baseball team or a, a volleyball team more than it does the Lord, something is wrong. Our priorities are out of place, right? In our homes, are we teaching our children to love the blue and silver more than the King of Kings and Lord of Lords? In our homes, are we teaching our children to be more devoted to a ball game than the church of the living Jesus Christ? I heard someone say the other day, we're so surprised when our, our kids leave the church after we've taught them for 18 years to value ball games, to value sporting events, band practices, concerts, plays, rehearsals, whatever it may be, more than the church of Jesus Christ. If we spend the entire time we have our children teaching them to love something the same or greater than God, don't be surprised when they leave the church. We all know it. Sports, especially in the South, has become an idol. It can be a fun thing, but when that fun thing becomes primary in our lives, when it's the first thing we talk about, when everybody around us only knows us because of our devotion to a team, something's wrong. And that's just an, an obvious expression of our idolatrous hearts. Think about the other things that manifest themselves, maybe a little less obviously, our jobs right? Do you find your identity in your job? Do you spend more time thinking about your job than the Lord? Is your health tied to your success at your job, your self-image, how you look? Do you crave the applause of man because of how you look? And if your body changes or you get old like we all do, you begin to lose the sense of your worth because of how you look? Money? Are you, are you trusting in your bank account for security and peace? If you don't have a lot of money in your bank account, do you lose sleep at night? If you do have a lot of money in your bank account, are you grateful and you go to sleep very easily because you ultimately trust in money to provide you the security that only God can? Politicians? I know we're getting close to home here. Are you only satisfied if one political party wins? If your political choice loses, are you devastated? Because somehow you think God's lost control of America or the world? Relationships? You're only going to be happy if you find a wife or a husband. You're only going to be satisfied if you're in a meaningful relationship. 
Again, those are gifts from God. But if they come ultimate, something's out of place. Jesus warns us. Something doesn't change in our hearts. Where he gets ultimate affection, ultimate worship, it's going to lead to destruction. But it doesn't have to. Because he also calls us to a greater repentance. A better repentance. His message, Matthew 4, 17, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus calls us to repentance and hear me, makes way for a greater repentance. I love the prayer that Elijah prays here as he prepares to to call on got this fire from heaven. He says, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, Israel, let it be known this day that you are God. I'm your servant. I've done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord. Answer me that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Isn't that interesting? This display of God's power calls the people of God to repentance. It's the display of God's power over and against the prophets of Baal that lead to them repenting. What's unfortunate, though, is that as great and incredible as the display of God's power was on Mount Carmel, the repentance didn't last because there was no transformation attached to it. Hear me. The work of Christ is a greater display of God's power that not only leads us to repentance, but enables our hearts to be transformed so that we can be captivated, not just for a season, but for all of eternity because of the power of God. Think about the power of God that's displayed upon the cross and the resurrection of Christ. There's been no greater display of God's glory, no greater display of His power over and against the powers and principalities of this world. There's no God who could answer the cry and the need of His people like God did upon the cross. And now, as we with spiritual eyes behold the work of God and Jesus upon the cross, our hearts are consumed with love for God that rejects any false God that could come our way, driving our devotion to Him and to Him alone. A transforming work in our hearts that allows us not to be deceived once again by our our fleshly appetites, but to be consumed by the love that God has shown us in Jesus. It's a lasting power that captivates our hearts and drives us to God. A better repentance because of the greater power associated with it, not just to captivate us, but to transform us. Golgotha is greater than Carmel. Finally, Jesus points us to a better future. When we repent, we escape the judgment of God and we enter into the presence of God, both now and forever. A foretaste here of what we will experience for all of eternity Jesus has gone to prepare a place for us. And he's going to come back and get us. Take us home. While we may be wandering in exile because of our sin, hear me, a beautiful return awaits us if you repent and turn to the Lord 
forsaking the foolishness of our idolatrous ways and embracing the one true God who is worthy of our worship. Jesus is better than Elijah. The true prophet of God, speaking God's words as God and leading his people to a greater repentance. And this prophet is going to pour out blessing on all of his people who return to the earth. How can we respond this morning? The first response to me is kind of obvious. Have you heeded the words of the prophet Christ, echoing the, the words of the prophet Elijah? How long will you go limping between two? Choose this day who you're going to serve. Is your ultimate devotion going to be to, to God or to some false thing that will only lead to your destruction? Today, would you see the power of God displayed not only on Carmel, but on Golgotha? Unmatched power, unmatched glory as God throws his wrath upon his son and allows him to conquer our greatest enemies of sin and death so that we could come near, could be drawn close to him. If you've never given your life to Jesus, if you or in a future of destruction, oh, today be the day that you would repent and believe. That you would repent. Reject these false gods that just indulge your appetites and lead to destruction and choose. Choose. And the power of the Spirit, God. For the rest of us, maybe we've already given our lives to Jesus, but we've returned to idolatrous ways. And even though we won't lose our salvation, we're going to lose the blessing of God by following after these idols again. Maybe today you need to repent. Maybe dads, moms, you got to repent. Today's my, my son Jude's birthday. He turns four years old today. And at, at the end of 18 years, he knows the cheers for LSU. He loves Baton Rouge. He loves purple and gold more than he loves Jesus. I have failed as a father. I failed. Desire my heart to see him love Jesus. I don't always do it perfectly. Maybe some of you in this room, you've just lost the responsibility that God's given to you as a dad or a mom. And you've been leading them to the wrong things. Oh, maybe repent today and reaffirm our commitment to make our number one priority as parents entrusted with these incredible children to show them how to love God. In Jesus. Maybe you need to return today because you've been worshiping the Lord or leading your household to worship a Baal. Finally, maybe you need to rejoice today because you have returned to the Lord and you know the blessing that awaits. You're getting foretastes today of the future that awaits. You lived in the land of spiritual drought and the rain started to come and you await the day when the water will never cease and your thirst will be completely and fully satisfied for all of eternity. That's a good reason to worship today. Wherever you are, would you pray? Spend some time before the Lord, asking Him to help you know how to respond. Father, may we heed the words, not only of Elijah, your servant, but of your greater servant, Jesus. May we see your power 
May we heed the call of judgment and return to you and repent. Father, we know you want to be a father of blessing. You want to pour out your blessing upon us. Blessing comes in Christ, the obedience of your people. Father, help us to worship you, to enjoy the blessing that you alone can give. We pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. You stand and respond as the Lord leads.